Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976 permits limited use of copyrighted material for news and educational purposes. This podcast is copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 52 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. We're living at a unique time in history, to say the least. We live at a time when people literally think some men are women and can have babies and nurse, and some women are men and should be able to impregnate other women and tattoo themselves like a sailor. These people think women are men, even though many of them hate real men and think they're oppressive but the women pretending to be men are not, apparently. We live at a time when our government and its paid corporatist allies change election laws and manipulate election results to corruptly select the rulers of their choice on both sides of the aisle. And in case you, a little person, get any funny ideas about exposing and fixing the problem, they will deploy legions of loyal police and Justice Department officials to threaten and intimidate you. And by all means, never question the fairest, most secure election ever in the history of elections unless you want to rot in a D.C. gulag without any hope of a fair trial or even a passing nod to your civil rights. So it should not be a surprise that these representatives of government benevolence were complicit in developing a bioweapon against the world. The call came, and they followed orders. They sent the word out to their bought-and-paid-for media allies to announce that a new, novel virus was threatening the planet one that had leapt straight from the bat caves of China to humanity through a soup pot in a meat market. The corporatist media dutifully reported this extremely unlikely jump across species without a thought that it might not be true, making sure to frighten everyone into thinking there was a terrifying microbe infecting the public and overwhelming a hospital near you. Do you remember that? An emergency room nurse from California sure does. Her name is Gail McRae, and she left the medical profession to become a whistleblower because her conscience would not allow her to continue drawing a paycheck under the circumstances of her employment. Let's hear her recollections of this recent episode of Fear in Our History. I think um, one of the important things about my situation is that I was working in the Bay Area of California, where we had one of the most compliant populations in the country. Uh, So we were compliant with not just the lockdowns and uh, the masking, but also the COVID injections. Uh, So in my community, when COVID was first announced and they locked down the hospitals and they stopped the elective surgeries, uh, our hospital completely emptied out. And this was one of the, this was when I really first saw that we were being lied to because the public was being told in the news that the hospitals were full and overwhelmed, and they weren't. Uh, I had colleagues all over the state of California who worked in units all over the hospital in the acute care setting, and not once during that first year of COVID in 2020 and the winter of 2021 were our hospitals overwhelmed. Um, I would say there was, uh, during the, the winter of 2020 and 2021, uh, when this happens every year. People come in with the flu and the hospitals fill. It happens every year. It's been doing that for 12, the whole 12 years I've been working in the acute care setting. So it was not unusual. Uh, we were not overwhelmed and the public was being lied to. 
So it turns out that the overwhelmed hospitals were not so overwhelmed after all, despite the media hype and the breathless scenes of stacked humans in the hallways. Maybe that explains why so many nurses around the country had the time in their overwhelming schedules to make TikTok dance numbers about coronaviruses and shots. When the novel new virus did not kill enough people, word went out to imprison the sick in nursing homes and hospital wards. Remember that, Governors Como and Murphy? The hospitals directed their staff to keep away family members and even attorneys from their patients, isolating them in special wards like criminals and depriving them of food and water, unlike criminals. They overinflated their lungs with a mechanical respirator for days and weeks at a time, pumped them full of ex an experimental drug that's been proven to do nothing but cause organ failure, and dutifully counted their inevitable deaths as caused by COVID so they could get paid a handsome reward by the federal government. This is known as the COVID protocol, a federal dictate which is still in effect in many hospitals. Our ICU nurse has several thoughts about this protocol. And then uh, with the rollout of the isolations, they also started um, the COVID protocols. And uh, I didn't notice right away the harm of these protocols until uh, I had to tell family members that they couldn't come to the bedside of their dying loved ones. That, uh, to me, was a crime against humanity and a violation of my oath that I knew right away should not have been happening. Uh, we isolate people in prison. We put them in the brig when they've done something wrong to torture them. And that's what I felt like I was being forced to do when I had to tell my patients' family members when they couldn't come into the hospital to be near their dying loved ones. So um, that was those small kinds of violations that I was recognizing, I think really helped me uh, accept that I needed to more critically analyze what I was being told to do and what was happening around me in the hospital. So after going through those two things at the beginning of the COVID lockdowns, it really helped me to stop and think when I was being told to do things. Like the next thing was the administration of uh, remdesivir. Uh, this was an experimental use authorization medication. It was the only drug that we were allowed to administer to patients who were hospitalized with COVID and it was an antiviral. And I'd been taught in my undergrad, my bachelor's degree program for nursing, that you do not administer an antiviral uh, more than 24 to 48 hours post-symptom onset for a viral infection. And so uh, this medication was being given to patients who were hospitalized with COVID, uh, usually not until between 10 and 12 days post-symptom onset. So I would ask my colleagues, why are we giving this medication? The administrators, my hospital, why are we doing this? And their eyes would glaze over. And I would say to them, we have evidence showing that the administration of antivirals more than two days post-symptom onset has causes more harm than good. The risk-benefit analysis does not correlate. And in addition to that, this was an experimental use product. And I knew that each one of those doses was over $3,000. 
So the only drug that hospitals were allowed to administer under the COVID protocol was remdesivir, a very expensive and highly lucrative drug for the pharmaceutical companies, and also, it turns out, by Anthony Fauci, who owned the patent on it. Fauci gets a financial cut every time a hospital administers the drug. Go figure! What other things does this nurse have to say about the protocol? In addition to that, the next, the next part of the COVID protocols that was so extremely disturbing to me was the fact that uh, at the onset of hospitalization for COVID, uh, there were a team of respiratory intensivists who went before Congress and showed them how effective high-dose steroids were for the treatment of patients who had uh, COVID. And uh, not only were we ignoring those recommendations for high-dose steroids, uh, they were actually blocking it from our hospitals to use. Now, why would hospitals block a protocol that was safe and effective for treating COVID? It's the same reason why the government and the hospitals and the media did everything in their power to stop the use of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine for treating COVID. It's not that they were ineffective horse medications or had the effect of injecting bleach into your veins, as the media so dramatically like to imply. And it's not because they're harmful drugs, because they've been prescribed hundreds of billions of times in countries around the world with almost no adverse reactions. In fact, the drugs are so safe that they are listed on the World Health Organization's short list of essential medications. These two drugs are routinely taken in Africa to fight malaria without any adverse effects. Isn't it funny that Africa, for all its poverty, suffered the lowest incidence of COVID-19 of all the continents on Earth? No, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were blacklisted by federal and state governments, medical associations, hospitals, pharmacies, and medical practitioners for the same reason that high-dose steroids were blacklisted. It's because, if there were any approved medications that could effectively treat COVID, then the experimental emergency use only authorized inoculations could not be unleashed on the world, and the whole point of this exercise would have been undermined. Let's hear another nugget from Nurse McRae. I'll say one more thing about these steroids, because this is really important. The COVID, whatever it was, virus, whatever COVID was, it caused more inflammation than we had ever seen in the hospital. So there's a lab value um, called CRP. And uh, even with influenza and things like this, we had never seen the inflammatory marker of CRP jump so high as we did with COVID. So for the government and the CDC and these three-letter organizations to tell practitioners that they could not administer steroids, which is the, this is the best treatment for an inflammatory process, it was absolutely criminal. You can't withhold steroids for the most inflammatory disease process that humanity has ever seen. So we have isolation of patients, fear-mongering from the media, withholding steroids, and the administration of remdesivir. Those were the things that um, I went to work and had to manage, um, where I every day felt like I was violating my oath as a practitioner. And ultimately, uh, it wasn't until after the rollout of the shots where I just couldn't do my job anymore. Uh, so that was the next part of what I witnessed. 
People who experience sudden trauma often feel like they are in a kind of alternative reality where things just don't seem like they could be real. This entire situation was so radically separated from normal reality that many people instinctively tried to find a rational, normal explanation for what is obviously an irrational, abnormal reality. The emotional shock it created caught us off guard, which the military understands can provide a temporary advantage, as those who are caught off guard try to make sense of what's happening and how to respond. It's the shock part of the shock and awe, unleashing of a weapon. Not to beat a dead horse, but I want to play the next part of this nurse's testimony because it speaks directly to the planning of this bioweapon release and the carefully constructed system of support that had been put in place prior to its deployment. So with the COVID vaccine, they were administering it at my hospital. So when uh, in February, so they released the shots, these shots to the practitioners in January of 2021. But they didn't release it to the public until close to the end of February. So by the beginning of March, I was starting to notice that my hospital was becoming slammed. And this is unusual because we get, you know, winter rushes. This is how the hospital works. It's dead in the summer and it's full in the winter. Like this is the cycle. And so I started noticing in March of 21 that it was very peculiar that I was starting to get all these calls to come to work because the hospital was understaffed and it did not stop. I was in graduate school at the time for my double nurse practitioner degree. So I would do three weeks at the hospital and then I'd take some time off and study for my schooling. Uh, so by June, when I went into the hospital, I was there for three weeks. Uh, three weeks in from uh, March to April and then another three weeks uh, in the middle of June to the beginning of July and I was working nonstop. I would work doubles basically every single shift. Uh, I was getting phone calls three times sometimes four times a day to come to work because they were so understaffed at the hospital and then in June my manager approached me and he said to me Gail this hospital has had three times more admissions than we have ever had since the hospital opened their doors. So that's a 300% increase in hospitalizations directly associated to the onset of these shots. So during that week, it was the end of June, it was around the 28th of that month when my manager came up to me and said this to me. And during that week, I had mentioned I was working doubles basically every shift I worked. And because of my position, uh, being in grad school, um, I held the position called per diem. So what that means is that oftentimes when I come to work, I end up filling in. I'll float to wherever they need me in the hospital. So on uh, that shift, when my manager had told me that we had had three times more admissions than they'd ever seen, there was that day, the next day I came in and worked a double and I split that 16 hours between two different units. And I got report on every single patient on both of those units. And this is really when it hit me that these were injection injuries because that's about 30 patients per unit I got report on. Every single one was there for some peculiar clot that I'd never heard of, a stroke, a heart attack. I had seen by that day four patients with rapid onset Guillain-Barre. In my entire career, I'd seen two. 
10 years as a nurse in acute care, I'd taken care of two patients with Guillain-Barre. Within a few short week period of time, I'd seen four. And I had the opportunity to ask two of those patients directly uh, what they thought was the cause of the onset of their Guillain-Barre, and two of them did tell me that they had received those COVID shots within 24 hours of onset of symptoms. And when I, and so from there, I approached my managers and I said, I've gotten report on two units full of patients that are all having the weirdest set of symptoms and several of them are confirming that they've just gotten these COVID vaccines. How can I report this? And my direct manager's response was, we cannot report these because we cannot prove that these are what is the cause, that these shots are what is causing these injections. One of my colleagues who was actually the nurse at the COVID injection clinic, she approached me one day and she will not come publicly to say this because she's afraid of losing her job. But she had asked her manager the same thing and they told her that if she reported a single adverse event, she would be fired. So we were constantly under pressure not to report. Uh, all of my concerns regarding the COVID um, protocols for hospitalized patients were, be, were not being addressed. Uh, I mentioned multiple times that I felt like we were violating our oaths. I was ignored. Uh, so it was shortly after that, that time in June of 21 when I had legal documents process served to several members of my hospital and uh, they, they fired me in retaliation for trying to hold them accountable for what I was witnessing. Contrary to popular belief, it does not take an upwelling of grassroots activists to support a governmental uprising against its citizens. It does not take the explicit approval of every link in a chain of corruption to unleash an unthinkable but hidden weapon on society. All it takes is a group of people who hold a financial interest in not rocking the boat and a handful of bought and paid for leaders to lead them along like a flock of dazed donkeys. And when a relatively small group of people, at least in comparison with the size of the national population, controls the purse strings of a country, and especially when government officials can print money with impunity, it is a small thing to buy off enough people to deploy a novel new weapon system. Those who helped deploy this inoculation bioweapon were richly rewarded by the government for their efforts with blood money for every death the hospitals caused, as long as they attributed those deaths to COVID. This was understood way back in 2021, as explained by attorney Todd Callender on the SGT report. What's the average lifespan of these patients that end up in ICU and put on vents? What, a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks? In, in my experience, it's 10 days. So the other part of this is, first and foremost, and this will blow your mind, the protocol is as soon as they, they have a COVID test come back as being positive, the, the hospital will put them on midazolam. Have you ever heard of this drug? Yeah, it slows the breathing and it makes it really convenient to start shutting everything down as they feed you the remdesivir, right? That's exactly right. Midazolam is the key ingredient in lethal injection drugs. That's what they put prisoners to death with. And this is what they're providing people out of the box. The first thing that happens, and then they add in the remdesivir. And then on top of that, they starve them. They cut off nutrition. So in my experience, it's about 10 days that people survive. If you don't get them out quick, then they're not coming out. How could it possibly be that the, these are protocols that should be universally accepted to deprive people of nutrition and essentially water, hydration? Yeah. 
Yeah, this is the most insidious part of this that, that leads me to believe that you know, this is a, a, a planned scenario and it's been planned for some time, at least since 2006. The Department of Justice put forth a publication called The Role of Law Enforcement in Public Health Emergencies. It's 2006. Effectively, what they've done is gone around the, the country, and, and I've run into this firsthand several times. Um, and they combine the hospital in a public health role as being part of law enforcement. So the typical scenario is, is um, you know, somebody can't get to their loved one who's in ICU. They're being starved. They're being medically battered because they're giving this person medication that they don't want. Remdesivir is a good example of that. Even if the, the, the loved one, you know, um, has given a medical power of attorney, such as the case of Shannon. So that they can say, you know, what it is that they want to have in terms of medicine or not. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, a lot of our clients have called local police and said, look, we want a health, safety and welfare check on our loved one. We haven't seen them for days. We think they're being starved or, or deprived of fluids. And um, I would say in most of the cases, what happens is the, the police either are already at the hospital or they show up and they arrest the, the person with a medical power of attorney or threaten them with trespass and kick them out. So in, in my case in Ohio, I was shocked um, to find out that, you know, when I called the local police chief and I said, look, we want a health, safety and welfare check. And he refused to do that. This is the chief of police. And I said, well, you know, you've got a, a complaint here with three felonies. It's got a case number. It's sworn out to in your jurisdiction and you're not going to investigate that. And he said, no, I'm not going to investigate that. Why? Uh, because the city attorney said that I, that I don't have to investigate. We're not going to investigate it. This is a civil matter. And I, I was shocked when he said this is a civil matter because you, there was a sworn complaint of three felonies. It was false imprisonment, medical battery, and kidnapping, medical kidnapping. All of those exist under Ohio's law. And yet you've got law enforcement that wouldn't actually do anything about it. So when you combine the fact that the law enforcement and the hospitals are now one and the same under public emergencies, you have a waiver of rights provided by the CMS um, waiver under COVID. So long as they can characterize somebody as, as a, an emergency under COVID, then there is no repercussions. They can do whatever it is they want and they are getting economically incentivized to do it. So where do you go? Where do we go when our government turns out to be the enemy that wants to kill us or at least control us? In America, we've not had to face this kind of tyrannical reality for some time. And time and distance from a problem softens the memory and makes it seem like the problem could not happen. But God says otherwise. God said in Revelation 6.1 and 6.2 that a weapon would be unleashed on the world by a governmental authority and the weapon wielder would be mistaken for a good guy. It would be a weapon that would be unleashed at a distance, an indirect weapon, and it would be successfully deployed against an unsuspecting public. For more details on that prophecy, go back and listen to episode 30. So they put out the word through their agencies and corporatist allies and hospital lapdogs that every illness was to be called COVID, especially illnesses that led to death, and every dead body where a scrap of DNA could be found that would match the new COVID flu was to be labeled a COVID death. Suddenly, through the magic of reclassification, annual flu deaths plunged from millions to near zero, and COVID deaths swelled from thousands to millions. And just like that, a pandemic was born. Do you want to know how indistinguishable COVID is from the flu? Listen to this A9 News Australia broadcast with some commentary thrown in from a local podcaster. 
Long COVID could be no worse than the flu. That's according to a landmark study by Queensland Health. The results have shocked Queensland's chief health officer. Not the Australian population, they weren't shocked because all they experienced and observed was the flu. And may come as a surprise to anyone dealing with long COVID. Well, if it's identical to the flu and they've had the flu before, and being told long COVID is actually the flu, I don't know how that is a surprise. A new study shows the impact of coronavirus is almost identical to the common flu. The research done mid last year tracked 2,200 adults with COVID and 1,000 with influenza for 12 weeks after initial diagnosis. It found of those with COVID, 21% reported ongoing symptoms after the 12 weeks, while 4% suffered moderate to severe effects that caused functional impairment. This compared with the flu patients, where 23% reported ongoing symptoms, with 4% also dealing with moderate to severe effects. Dr John Gerard says it's critical to note Queensland had a high vaccination rate when the research was done, with the jab shown to help weaken the impacts of long COVID. Well, that's just a broad statement, unlike the actual peer-reviewed case study where they put percentages up. He doesn't say what percentage of severity it would have been had there been no jabs. But in New South Wales, across the border, it's the exact opposite of what he says, because when they used to publish the statistics on people in hospital and their jab status, this is what we saw. Not a single COVID hospitalization or ICU admission was among the fully unvaccinated. No dose of the vaccine admitted to the hospital? Zero. While he also stressed the results didn't detract from the seriousness of long COVID, but showed its impacts weren't too dissimilar from other viruses. So the entire world, but I'll just talk about Australia for our statistics, went through an emergency. The Governor-General declared an emergency on modelling by Jodie McVernon from the Doherty Institute. Yeah, I haven't forgotten you, Jodie. Isn't it amazing that in 2023, after all the emergencies over and the jab program's done, suddenly they do this study. Oh, actually, what we might do is we might compare COVID with the flu. This wasn't a big surprise because they had already published the symptoms alongside influenza. So this was just uh, going down the path of replacing the modelling with a study. Now, in 2020, there was more than a 1,000 cases of COVID. And without lockdowns and honest reporting, if just I can show there was more than a 1,000 cases of flu, by the way. I've got a video coming up on that. So that was there. They could have just done this 12-week study. I don't know say from August through to October, November 2020. Oh, they're the same thing. Shut the whole emergency down, everything back to normal. But no, no need for this ridiculous jab program. And the border closures, remember people couldn't have weddings, couldn't go to funerals. This was serious stuff. Now, at the end of it all, three years later, a year after the emergency ended in April 2022, April 2023, all pre-planned for a long, long time ago, and now coming clean or walking it back. Oh, by the way, it was just the flu. All right, no more questions, please. Yeah, yeah, it was just the flu. So despite all the money and resources they spent trying to design a new pathogen that would create the effect they needed, it turned out that it was harder to manufacture a pathogen to emulate a respiratory illness than it was to just use a naturally occurring respiratory illness and pretend it's a new pathogen. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing to COVID, but I think the real COVID, whatever it is, was a small-scale deployment of a non-infectious but dangerous pathogen within the much larger and widespread infectious flu distribution, which created the appearance of a novel illness so that they could trick the public. 
The COVID test that was developed so quickly is likely nothing but a fraud that picks up DNA fragments of the common flu virus. So why was a pandemic necessary? Because that was the only way to deploy the bioweapon across the entire world in a way that would not be detected until it was too late and where the political leaders of the world could plead plausible deniability of the deployment of a weapon system. One proof that it is a weapon system is the way it was deployed. It was not rolled out as a recommendation by the government to inoculate with an experimental technology, but a demand by the governments of the world in lockstep for compliance, a demand backed up by never-before-used social media pressure, widespread and overt propaganda tactics, threats of unemployment for anyone refusing to participate in the inoculation program, and finally here in America, actual loss of jobs, businesses, and livelihoods for those who continued resisting. Overseas, fines were levied against resistors and inoculations were even forced on some people. Still, it didn't go as smoothly as they had hoped, particularly within certain suspicious groups of people. One of those groups the government was particularly interested in getting inoculated, to the point where force was actually used, or tried to be used, was the U.S. military. And that brings us back to Attorney Todd Callender. In an interview with Mary Crowley, Todd explains his involvement with this particular group of Americans. You're an attorney. Now, you you guys joined forces last year. So when did you start getting into this, Todd? Give us a little bit of your background. Well, when you talk about getting into it, I was already into it in some respects. I My family owns um, the intellectual property rights to a needle-free injector. And back in the late 1990s, I was getting that injector through the FDA protocols for an investigative new device. So I spent three years in Cuba doing exactly that, phase three clinical trials. Um, and in the process of that, we, we were the first U.S. company authorized by the U.S. government to do this. And so it was a brand new market, nascent for uh, all the big guys that want to get there, too. So I actually brought the WHO, uh, Pfizer and other notable companies into Cuba as part of that process. So I actually know these people. I've done business with these very same people. And when I saw what was happening, um, and again, my sister runs the company, so I'm, I'm seeing shareholder updates I knew what this was about. I, I already knew not to trust these people because I'd done business with them and I understood what the vaccine industry was about. And I just couldn't, I couldn't take it. So when I saw that these were going to be compulsory shots, investigational new drug, emergency use only, compulsory shots with use of force authorized, I, I couldn't stay out of the fight. And um, there was a group of people in the army in particular that were interested in finding a lawyer or lawyers to bring suit to stop it. And uh, nobody else jumped in, and, and I was the only guy in the whole group that was licensed in the federal courts. So I volunteered to do it. Um, and then a bunch of other really good people jumped on board to help out with that. So that case was Robert B. Austin. We sued the DOD, HHS, and FDA. It was the first suit against the federal government to try and stop the mandates. Uh, and along with it came 200,000 uh, military members to begin with. That was the size of our class. And by now it's somewhere in the neighborhood of four or 500,000 people. Um, so the, the precept of this whole thing, the reason why I filed suit was really on the basis that um, we wanted to educate people that this is Nuremberg II, that what it was the government was proposing is patently illegal. What our government is doing right now, all the governments on the planet are doing right now is what we hung people for in Germany in 1945-6. The exact same stuff, coercion, threats, um, doing experiments on people. This injection was all but forced on the public, including our children, under threats of unemployment, eviction from schools and universities, closure of businesses, and termination of free speech and assembly rights. And in the case of the military members, they were ordered to take the shots under penalty of court-martial if they refused. 
A court-martial is a criminal proceeding, so the military members were being threatened with a criminal conviction if they refused to inject an experimental emergency-use-only authorized inoculation into their bodies. The term emergency-use-only authorized is supposed to mean that the government cannot legally force anyone to take it, or pressure them to take it, or penalize them for not taking it, which is exactly what the government was doing in the case of the military threats. That was the reason for the lawsuit. Those army soldiers did not want to inject an unproven experimental potion into their bodies, which is evidence that my fellow army grunts aren't as stupid as people often think they are. Keep in mind that while this lawsuit was being filed, the government and its corporatist allies and media mouthpieces had the audacity to declare that the inoculations were safe and effective without having the slightest bit of evidence that they were either one. And we now know they didn't have any evidence because of the recently released Pfizer document dump that was ordered by one brave judge. These three-letter agency government troglodytes and their corporate allies tried to hide pertinent facts about the known dangers of the vaccine from the public for 75 years by locking them down where no one could get eyes on them in a country where, presumably, we the people have the right to access that kind of pertinent information by asking for it. Agencies are supposed to be of the people, by the people, and for the people, meaning representatives of the people and not rulers over them. Yet they tried to hide evidence of conspiracy and malfeasance from the people, and we can make the case that they were even hiding this evidence with genocidal intent. The only legitimate purpose of any government, according to the founders of this republic, is to secure the rights of its citizens. It is not legitimate for a government to determine what rights we have, if any, so these are not the actions of a legitimate government. Due only to the very brave act of this one single federal judge, we now have access to these documents, which prove governmental and corporate collusion to withhold pertinent information about the testing of the inoculation, conspiracy to commit fraud through false representations of vaccine testing and efficacy, and criminal battery and murder for unleashing a known bioweapon on the public. And we get all that from these documents that were supposed to remain hidden for 75 years. But you won't hear about any of this by listening to the mainstream press or watching television news entertainment broadcasts because those entities were captured by these new fascists a long time ago, and they are fascists in the truest sense of the word. The media lapdogs of these authoritarian fascists will only tell you what the government wants you to hear, which is almost nothing that's true. They don't want Americans to learn that they have been systemically lied to and manipulated in a way that's going to result in a lot of very unfortunate consequences for a lot of people. They lied, and they keep lying, and lying, and lying, because if authoritarian figures tell a lie long enough and loudly enough, many people will come to believe it. Satan cannot allow truth to escape, because then people would not follow him or his lying, deceiving politicians, bureaucrats, corporatists, and bought-and-paid-for scientists and academics, and they certainly will not willingly walk down the path that he's leading them to their own destruction, a path right out of the Bible. The lies must go on because if we the people knew and really believed what these globalist aspiring tyrants have in store for us, there would be rioting in the streets and large numbers of people would be looking for the very people who are responsible for bringing this cataclysm down on us. I think many suspect something unsettling may be going on, but very, very few of them can really believe the magnitude of it, which is why the streets are quiet here in America. In other parts of the world, where the citizens are more intimately familiar with the lying tactics and deceptive outcomes of fascism and communism, there's a lot less quietness. But here in America, the streets are quiet. For now. All we need to better comprehend what these fascist globalists are plotting in private, in places we cannot go and in rooms we cannot visit, is to hear what they tell us in public. 
Let's begin at the start of the 20th century, although that's not where the globalist march towards revelation began. It began long before then, but for brevity's sake, let's start there. Barely a decade into the 20th century, Europe suddenly exploded in a fit of psychotic rage that became World War I. By the end of the war, there were 20 million fewer people on Earth, and another 23 million of those who remained were wounded, and much of Europe lay in ruins. After a short interlude that plunged Germany into extreme poverty and enraged the Germans against their neighbors, World War II exploded onto the world stage, first in Poland and then in France. The American president at the time, Franklin Roosevelt, desperately wanted to join the fight to kill Germans, but the American public resisted his call for blood with a demand that we stay out of it. Not to be controlled by the insufferable will of the common people, Roosevelt and the developing deep state secretly encouraged and funded the war in Europe by illicitly smuggling arms and munitions across the Atlantic to the British so they could fight on our behalf. And we sank a few German U-boats along the way. Then on December 7, 1941, a naval armada from Japan somehow managed to sneak its way over to Hawaii, as well as several other major military ports around the world, and unexpectedly, and without any warning at all, cross my heart, unleashed an attack that sunk a large percentage of the American fleet. Gosh, that was convenient, because the next thing you know, an outraged President Roosevelt was on the telly convincing the American public that we had to enter this new war that he so much coveted. Honor and peace and safety were at stake, he said. Six long years and 85 million dead people later, World War II ground to a close, having exhausted the world and having successfully thinned down the population. This time, the leaders of the world went on a publicity campaign to convince the world's people that the only way to prevent World War III was to achieve lasting peace by establishing a super-government of the world that would make peace and safety its foremost objectives. This, of course, was the globalists' plan all along, and all it took was two exhausting world wars and over a hundred million dead people to sell it to the public. The start of that happy day began on June 24, 1945, just days after the close of World War II. The propaganda was on full display as they announced the creation of the organization that would soon be used to usher in the end times beast system that they secretly sought. When arrives to attend the last session of the conference to mark its official closing, a day which the whole civilized world has awaited anxiously that it might judge results. And the world, as well as San Francisco, rejoices over great progress made. At the Opera House, last hours of the convention, as delegates of the steering committee honor Edward Stettinius, who later resigned as Secretary of State to become permanent chairman of the American delegation. And Lord Halifax calls dramatically for a standing vote on the completed charter. And it is now my duty, my honor and my privilege in the chair to call for a vote on the approval of the charter of the United Nations. Nation by nation, the delegates stand up for the great new charter they hammered out together. Fifty nations standing side by side, unanimous for peace. Final signing of the charter. China signing first as the first nation attacked in this war. Dr. Wellington Koo's signature topping the long list to come. Then for Russia, Ambassador Gromyko commits his country also to the agreements and objectives decided upon. After days and nights of compromise and cooperation, four main agencies upon which the world now puts its hope. Powerful Security Council having final military authority. A General Assembly representing all member nations. A Social and Economic Council to tackle the causes of war. 
and an international court to judge any international disputes. The signing is done. The Great Charter is completed. This draft of mankind's deepest hopes already a historic document. Perhaps the Magna Carta of peace-loving humanity itself. Now Stettinius introduces the final speaker of the San Francisco Convention. The President of the United States of America. If we had had this charter a few years ago, and above all, the will to use it, millions now dead would be alive. If we should falter in the future in our will to use it, millions now living will surely die. Now there's a time for making plans, and there's a time for action. The time for action is here now. Today, the Allied world salutes these representatives of 50 nations. They have made a beginning, a brave beginning, that can build a mighty structure for peace. Out of a world of agony and total war has come a charter that must mark a turning point in human history. A new way lies ahead. The world must take this way, through unity and cooperation, to a lasting peace. Is there anything as nauseating as listening to the propaganda of these satanic globalists gloat over the birth of their beast-ushering world governmental system? Statements like, we must create this organization and we must transfer our sovereign power into the hands of an unelected globalist oligarchy are statements of tyrants who want to crush mankind under their thumbs of control, not statements of a free people who want their governments to protect them from evil tyrants, but otherwise stay out of their lives. So that was the start of the organization that has been created to usher in the beast system. With their globalist United Nations organization in place, the roaches of evil faded back into the background, secure in the knowledge that the minions of power were working day and night to advance the dark forces of evil. With their public-facing governmental structure in place, one that would develop the practice of doublespeak to an art form, these globalist oligarchs would remain safely in the shadows for the next 80 years. They were used to being in the shadows, having operated through secret societies to leverage control over the affairs of government for centuries. Organizations such as the Bilderberg Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and the Royal Institute of International Affairs, to name just a few of the more prominent names, formed their secretive control structure. A latecomer to the world of secret societies, and an organization that you and I do not belong to and never will, is the World Economic Forum, or WEF. The WEF has become the unofficial mouthpiece of the oligarchs, and they use it to train globalist leaders. Hundreds of their graduates infect governments around the world, even at the highest levels of government. They also use it to announce what they intend to do with humanity and what they've already accomplished toward its enslavement. One of my very favorite WEF associates is the almost literal incarnation of Golem, a man who likes to pretend he's a normal, neutral observer of the human condition, but who is in fact one of the vilest predators on Earth one who follows the occult masterminds of death around like a malignant muse. This cunning and wily serpent goes by the name of Yuval Noah Harari. As the mouthpiece for the World Economic Forum, which is the political arm of the globalist leaders, his job is to let us know what they are planning in a way that makes him seem like a sympathetic ally to the common man. I'd like to thank Clay Clark for compiling so many of Yuval's soundbites in one place on the Thrive Time Show. It sure makes things easy to find. 
So what words of wisdom does this globalist mouthpiece have for us? Let's begin with a news item that they, the globalists, would like you to embrace. Yuval does not actually speak in this sound clip, but rather his interviewer is quoting what he wrote in one of his books. You have a lovely passage where you say, looking at the world today, God seems to be making a comeback, but this is a mirage. God is dead. It just takes a while to get rid of the body. (laughs) (laughs) So not only does Yuval glory in blasphemy, but he and his supporters think it's really funny blasphemy. (laughs) This little joke of theirs underscores all the planning and activities that these people have unleashed on the world. It's not that they're atheists, although they don't mind if you believe that. It's that they hate the real God, Yahweh, and they believe Satan is the God with the real power. The top globalists are a group of people who claim to be Jews, specifically Ashkenazi Jews, but they're not real Jews. They are a fraud. As it says in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, there is a group of people who will torment Christians in the end times, and these people claim to be Jews, but are not. They are liars. They are, in fact, a synagogue of Satan, a synagogue being a group of people who worship a supernatural being, in this case, Satan. So the first excuse for justifying the plans of this synagogue of Satan, otherwise known as the globalists, is that God does not exist. They would have you believe that makes them morally free to choose their own destiny. And so what comes next? I don't think life has any meaning. Um, so so in, in that sense, it's, it's, it's not... It's not a strong counter-argument. I know that many religions and philosophies have based the meaning of life on death and what, ha- what happens after death, but I think these are all fictional stories that people have invented uh, through history. They are not the truth. You see, if God is dead and life has no inherent meaning, and we can thank Karl Nietzsche for that insight, the globalists must be doing the world a favor by filling that void and giving it meaning. You Christians and Jews base your value system on death, they say, but we globalists base our value system on life. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? Everyone wants life. Peace is about life. Safety is about life. Medicine is about life. Pharmaceuticals are about life. The environment is about life. Sustainability is about life. Climate stability is about life. All these globalist buzzwords are all about life. It's you Christians who are obsessed with death. So what is their plan for life? Throughout history, uh, death was kind of the great equalizer. I mean, the poor people always told themselves, say in the Middle Ages, yes, now these rich people, they have all the good things in life, but they will die in the end, at least that. Uh, Just think what it means to be a poor person in a world when you die but the rich continue to live young and beautiful forever. I mean, it's a cause for a lot of anger. It doesn't take long for us to start seeing the objective of their plan. Their plan is to cast death aside so they can live rich and beautiful lives forever. But not everyone, of course. No, not everyone. The poor are not included in their plans because why? Well, he doesn't say why in this clip. But he does in other ones. It's because the poor are useless. And it is here that the globalists perceive a problem. Useless eaters, who will not live rich and beautiful lives forever, will get envious of those people who will live their lives forever, and that will generate anger and resentment among the dirty class. And that logical conclusion is the motivator for much of the rest of their plans. They live in fear because they are afraid of us. 
Maybe that's because we remember Nuremberg and what it stood for. Fortunately, they won't have to worry about us much longer because they have a plan. Beings which will have different bodies, different minds, different brains. I mean, the big products of the coming century will not be shoes or clothes or cars or weapons. The big products of the 21st century are going to be bodies and minds. So I think we are heading to, towards the upgrading of Homo sapiens into gods. I will replace natural selection by intelligent design. You have, especially in the US, this big argument between natural selection and intelligent design. And the funny thing is, the ironic thing is, that the people who believe in natural selection, I think they're obviously right about the past. But the people who believe in intelligent design, they are right about the future. Mm. The future of life belongs to intelligent design, but the designers, the intelligent designers, will not be some gods above the clouds. We are going to be the intelligent designers of the future of life in the universe. So forget those gods up there in the sky claiming they create life. It's humanity that's going to create life in the future by designing it in our laboratories and art galleries. And what is the purpose of this redesign of life? I think that within, say, 200 years, uh, to give a, a conservative estimate, there won't be Homo sapiens on, on planet Earth. 200 years? 200 years, and I think this is a conservative estimate. Wow. Uh, I, maybe even 100 years. It's not that we'll destroy ourselves in some calamity. Much more likely, we will use advanced technology, biotechnology, nanotechnology, direct brain-computer interfaces to upgrade Homo sapiens into different kinds of beings, beings which are different from us much more than we are different from Neanderthals. Now, don't be deceived by Yuval's time estimate of a century or two. They have no intention of taking that much time. Those time estimates are thrown in there to keep the simple, dirty people from panicking by understanding that the real time scale is short, and that kind of panic could create problems for their modification of the human species program. Remember, they're afraid of us. So their plan is very simple. Some people, not you and me, are going to be modified into gods. And other people, like you and me, are not going to be modified into gods. See how simple it is? It's just going to take them a little bit of time. Now every good scientist knows that the process of designing a novel new entity is fraught with uncertainty and unanticipated problems. That's why there is an extensive period of testing and modifications in the development of every new product. If some people are to receive new bodies that will not age or die, and new minds with vastly improved capabilities, then the process of going from where we are to where they want us to be will involve a lot of testing, and testing does not always produce the desired or anticipated outcomes. Testing often leads to redesign, which leads to more testing, which leads to more redesign. Do you think for one minute that they're going to do that testing on themselves? They want the final, finished, perfected product for themselves. They do not want to be the guinea pigs that are being tested to perfect the outcome. Anyone who's going to redesign the human species can't do the testing on mice and rabbits and dogs or even on monkeys. The testing has to be done on people. For those who are marginally familiar with the events of Nazi Germany with respect to medical experimentation, you may be getting a feeling of deja vu all over again. So they have a plan, and the plan involves deployment and testing of a new human species one that's only going to be available to a select few godlike people like them. But I'm not for that, you say. I won't go along with it. Yes, you will. 
Free will, as far as we understand today, is an empty concept that doesn't describe anything in reality or in nature. Humans certainly have desires. They have a will. But they are not free to choose their desires, to choose their will. The easiest people to manipulate, for example, with fake news, is people who trust too much in their own free will and, and say, oh, I'm not making this decision because of anything. It, it's just my free decision. They are the easiest people to manipulate because they can't even conceive how easy it is to once you get to know their weaknesses, once you get to know their hatreds or their fears, it's so easy to manipulate them. Yes, it is. He's right. People are manipulated every day. Most people have no idea how easy it is to manipulate them because they can't conceive that they could possibly be manipulated, and moreover, they can't accept that they are being manipulated. So the first defense that's necessary to protect ourselves from this kind of evil is to admit that we're susceptible to manipulation. That allows us to objectively evaluate if we are being manipulated and by whom. Okay, so we can be manipulated, but to what end? What are they trying to do specifically? When infotech and biotech merge, what you get is the ability to hack human beings. There is a lot of talk of hacking these days, about hacking computers and smartphones and email accounts and bank accounts, but we are really living or entering the era of hacking human beings. And once you can hack human beings, then authority is likely to shift from human feelings, which are no longer this black box that nobody understands. The authority might shift from human feelings to computer algorithms. And humanisms and, 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 and elections and, and uh, the free market and so forth, all this will make no more sense. The merging of infotech and biotech, they are telling us, will lead to a complete change in how society is structured, including the driving forces of society. No, Yuval does not explain why society must be completely changed, but its change is consistent with the WEF's commercial that bragged that you will own nothing and be happy. And it is consistent with the biblical promise that the Antichrist will control his society through what the Bible calls the mark of the beast. Now, in the past, many tyrants and governments wanted to do it, but nobody understood biology well enough. And nobody had enough computing power and data to hack millions of people. Neither the Gestapo nor the KGB could do it. But soon, at least some corporations and governments will be able to systematically hack all the people. We humans should get used to the idea that we are no longer mysterious souls. We are now hackable animals. That's what we are. When Yuval says that soon governments will be able to hack and control millions of people, he's not projecting to a distant dystopian future. He's telling us that the governments of the world, in conjunction with their corporate biotech and infotech allies, are nearly there. Isn't it insightful that he mentions the Gestapo and the KGB? Those are the failed models of control that the new generation of globalists wish to replace with their own new version. But how will they do it? Listen closely to catch the things he says. 
whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. We have the technology to hack human beings on a massive scale. New surveillance technologies that are now deployed just to deal with this coronavirus uh, outbreak, when it's over, some governments may say, yes, but there is a second wave of corona coming, so we have to be prepared. And there is Ebola, and there is also regular flu. Why not protect people against that too with this new surveillance system? So the tendency would be to prolong it uh, indefinitely. Also, it's the moment when surveillance goes really under the skin Governments are now not, not just interested in where we go and who we meet, but even in what's happening inside our bodies. The surveillance technology that will make this whole system work was already deployed during the COVID-19 era. And what was being deployed while the rest of us were otherwise locked down? Why, it was the 5G system. That is the control technology that was deployed that will give the artificial intelligence computers via the infotech companies the ability to interface with sensors inside our bodies to manipulate us from the inside out. And how do sensors get inside our body? By injecting biotech into them, as explained by Klaus Schwab, the boss of Yuval, as well as Yuval himself. With all the current issues on our agenda, we tend to forget that we are in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution, which accelerates global change in much more comprehensive and faster ways than the previous three revolutions. And you see, the difference of this fourth uh, industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing. It changes you. If you take a genetic editing, right. uh, just as an example, it's you who exactly. are changed. Yeah. And of yeah. course, this has a big impact on yeah. your identity. We need to realize that Humans are now hackable animals. You can hack them. A good two-way communication system, direct communication system, between brains and computers, this is kind of a, the, the watershed moment. I mean, once you have a good two-way, nobody has any idea what happens after that. Well, I think maybe in a couple of decades when people look back, the thing they will remember from the COVID crisis is this is the moment when everything went digital. And if this, is, this was the moment when every, everything became monitored. That we agreed to be surveyed all, all the time, not just in authoritarian machines, but even in democracies. And maybe most importantly at all, this was the moment when surveillance started going under the skin. I think that the big process that's happening right now in the world is uh, hacking human beings, the ability to hack humans, to understand deeply what's happening within you, what, what, makes, you, what, what, what makes you go. And for that, the most important data is not what you read and who you meet and what you buy, it's what's happening inside your body. So we had these two big revolutions, the computer science revolution or the, the infotech revolution, and the revolution in the biological sciences. And they are still separate, but they are about to merge. History is truly at a turning point. We do not yet know the full extent and the systemic and structural changes which will happen.
However, we do know that global energy systems, food systems and supply chains will be deeply affected. But the fourth industrial revolution is actually changing ourselves. It's changing not only what we are doing, it's changing who we are. The fourth industrial revolution will lead to is a fusion of our physical, our digital and our biological identities. Did you know that you agreed to be surveilled? That's what you've all said. You agreed to it. <laughs> you've got to hand it to these people for their unmitigated arrogance and conceit. They deploy a surveillance operation on our tax dime and infuse our bodies with machinery that can surveil us. And somehow we agreed to it. And Klaus was pretty clear that the purpose of this deployment is to change who we are from the inside out. That's their plan. Oh yes, he said us, but that's just a nicety. I assure you that Klaus is not being changed inside like you and I are. People like him will wait for the trials to be completed and the transformation process perfected before they subject themselves to that kind of alteration. The development process is much too dangerous for them to participate in, and the development process is what is taking place right now. The technology is being simultaneously deployed and developed and tested. Part of this process involves population control, which is a euphemism for population reduction. Remember, they're afraid of us mostly because there are too many people for them to control. They want to fix that little problem in three ways. Number one, they want to reduce the population to a manageable size, which means a sustainable size, which they have calculated to be somewhere around 500 million souls for the whole Earth's population. That's the first part of the fix. Then, they will connect each person to the Internet of Things so that we can be surveilled more effectively and induced to think the thoughts they want us to think. To do that, they need to implant synthetic biology inside each person so they can construct control systems inside our bodies, and they need to erect a network of control nodes around the world to control these systems inside our bodies, both of which are being constructed today. That's the hacking of our bodies that you've all are so interested in talking about. And finally, they need an external system of enforcers to make sure that their servile slaves won't ever get out of control. That part of the equation is coming along nicely, too, in the form of highly advanced robots who will be controlled by artificial intelligence. Revelation is very specific about this system that is being constructed in front of our very eyes. Revelation 13 discusses the role of the false prophet in setting up the beast system of the Antichrist. It says the false prophet will give orders to the men in that day to make an image of the beast, the beast being the Antichrist, and the false prophet will give breath to the image and cause it to speak. In other words, the created image will take the form of a man and be animated and mobile, and it will be able to communicate with us. Well, that sounds an awful lot like a robot to me. And what will the function of this robot or series of robots be? It will cause everyone who will not worship the robot, who is the image of the beast, to be killed. It will cause to be killed or it will kill directly. Doesn't really matter. I believe the movie Terminator was a kind of predictive programming for this rapidly approaching day. And what will be the form of worship that the false prophet will demand from each person to keep them from being killed by the rampaging robots? It will be a mark in the right hand or on the forehead of each person. And no one will be able to participate in the economic activity of that future world empire unless they have the mark, or they possess the name of the beast, which I think means they are a member of his family, 
or they have the number of his name, which would be a registry of all those special people who rule over the slaves on behalf of the beast. That would be the rulers, the special people. So those are the three categories of people who will exist in that rapidly approaching day. The family of the beast, who are the royal aristocrats, and they will not have to you know, do the things of the regular people. Their servant rulers beneath them, they'll get some privileges, but not all. And then at the very bottom, the slaves. Those are the ones who will be controlled by the robots. Oh, and there's a fourth class, the rebels, who are to be tracked down and killed by the robots. Gosh, God had this science fiction stuff all worked out even before Hollywood. Or maybe the Hollywoody type stole the idea from God. Either way, at the current moment, we're in the middle of stage one, which is the widespread killing and death of the vast majority of the world's population, which was also spoken of at length in the prophecies of the Bible. There is going to be widespread violence, chaos, famines, pestilences, and human-on-human predation across the globe. Maybe this is why most of the super-wealthy elitists are building secret underground bunkers stocked with years and years of food and supplies. The chaos is coming, and with it, a rapid, abrupt change in all of our lifestyles and daily experiences. But don't despair. We can prepare. Which brings us to the point of this episode. There is a document, a record of an interview of a survivor of the Bosnian War, ostensibly. Its authenticity can't be verified, as it was supposedly translated first into French by a Russian translator, and then from French into English. But nevertheless, it's worthwhile for us to reflect on this man's insights of what it took to survive what we might today call a grid-down scenario. That's where, one day, life no longer operates normally. I'll read it without too many interruptions and with limited editing, because I think this man's wisdom speaks for itself. The article is entitled, One Year in Hell. It begins, I am from Bosnia. Between 1992 and 1995, it was hell. For one year, I lived and survived in a city with 6,000 people without water, electricity, gasoline, medical help, civil defense, distribution service, any kind of traditional service or centralized rule. Our city was blockaded by the army, and for one year, life in the city turned into total crap. We had no army, no police. We only had armed groups who protected their homes and families. When it all started, some of us were better prepared, but most of the neighbors' families had only enough food for a few days. Some had pistols, a few had AK-47s or shotguns. Remember, this is taking place in Bosnia. After a month or two, gangs started operating, destroying everything. There was no more police. About 80% of the hospital staff were gone, and the hospitals turned into slaughterhouses. I got lucky. My family at the time was fairly large, 15 people in a large house, 6 pistols, 3 AKs and most of us survived. The Americans dropped MREs, that stands for Meals Ready to Eat, which are soldier rations. They dropped them every 10 days to help blockaded cities, but this was never enough. Some, very few, had gardens. It took three months for the first rumors to spread of men dying from hunger and cold. We removed all the doors, the window frames from abandoned houses, ripped up the floors and burned the furniture for heat. Many people died from diseases, especially from the water. We drank mostly rainwater, ate pigeons, and even rats. Money soon became worthless. We returned to an exchange. For a tin can of tushonka, a kind of Soviet spam, you could have a woman. Most of the women who sold themselves were desperate mothers. Arms, ammunition, candles, lighters, antibiotics, gasoline, batteries, and food. We fought for all these things like animals. In these situations, it all changes. Men become monsters. It was disgusting. Strength was in numbers. 
A man living alone getting killed and robbed would only be a matter of time, even if he was armed. Today, me and my family are well prepared. I'm well armed and have experience. It does not matter what will happen. An earthquake, a war, tsunami, aliens, terrorists, economic collapse, uprising. The important part is that something will happen. Here's my experience. You cannot make it on your own. Don't stay apart from your family. Prepare together and choose reliable friends. Then the author answers some questions about how he survived the desperate social collapse situation. So it'll be a question followed by his answers. Number one, how did you move safely in a city? The city was divided into communities along streets. Our street, 15 to 20 homes, had patrols. Five armed men every week to watch for gangs and for our enemies. All the exchanges occurred in the street. About five kilometers away was an entire street for trading, all well organized. But going there was too dangerous because of snipers. You could also get robbed by bandits. I only went there twice when I needed something really rare like medicine. Nobody used automobiles in the city. The streets were blocked by wreckage and by abandoned cars. Gasoline was very expensive. If one needed to go somewhere, that was to be done at night. Never travel alone or in groups that were too big. Always two or three men, all armed. Travel swift in the shadows and cross streets through ruins, not along open streets. There were many gangs, 10 to 15 men strong, some as large as 50 men. But there were also many normal men like you and me, fathers and grandfathers who were killed and robbed. There were no good and bad men. Most were in the middle and ready for the worst. Question 2. What about wood? Your home city is surrounded by woods. Why did you burn doors and furniture? There were not that many woods left around the city. It had been very beautiful. Restaurants, cinemas, schools, even an airport. But every tree in the city and in the city park was cut down for fuel in the first two months. Without electricity for cooking and heat, we burned anything that burned. Furniture, doors, flooring. That wood burned swiftly. We had no suburbs or suburban farms. The enemy was in the suburbs. We were surrounded. Even in the city, you never knew who the enemy was at any given point. Question 3. What knowledge was useful to you in that period? To imagine the situation a bit better, you should know that it was pr practically a return to the Stone Age. For example, I had a container of cooking gas, but I didn't use it for heat. That would be too wasteful. I attached a handmade nozzle to it and used the cylinder to fill lighters. Lighters were precious. If a man brought an empty lighter, I would fill it and he would give me a tin of food or a candle. I had been a paramedic, which was my knowledge and my wealth. You need to be curious and skilled. In these conditions, the ability to fix things is more valuable than gold. Items and supplies will inevitably run out, but your skills will keep you fed. I wish to say this. Learn to fix things, whether shoes or people. My neighbor, for example, knew how to make kerosene for lamps, and he never went hungry. Question 4. If you had three months to prepare now, what would you do? I know everything can collapse really fast. I have a stockpile of food, hygiene items, batteries, enough to last me for six months. I live in a very secure flat and I own a home with a shelter in a village that's five kilometers away. Another six-month supply is there too. That's a small village. Most people there are well prepared. The war had taught them. I have four weapons and 2,000 rounds for each one. I have a garden and have learned gardening. Also, I have a good instinct. You know, when everyone around you keeps telling you it'll all be fine, but I know it will collapse. I have strength to do what I need to protect my family. Because when it all collapses, you must be ready to do bad things to keep your children alive and protect your family. Surviving on your own is practically impossible. Even if you're armed and ready, if you're alone, you're going to die. I have seen that many, many times. Families and groups, well prepared with skills and knowledge in various fields, that's much better. Question 5. What should we stockpile? Well, that depends. 
If you plan to live by theft, all you need is weapons and ammo. Lots of ammo. If not, more food, hygiene items, batteries, rechargers, little trading items, knives, lighters, flints, soap. Also alcohol of a type that keeps well. The cheapest whiskey is a good trading item. Many people die from insufficient hygiene. You'll need simple items in great amounts. For example, garbage bags, lots of them, and toilet paper. Non-reusable dishes and cups, you'll need lots of them. I know that because we didn't have any at all. As for me, a supply of hygiene items is perhaps more important than food. You can shoot a pigeon. You can find a plant to eat. You can't find or shoot any disinfectant. Disinfectant, detergents, bleach, soap, gloves, masks, first aid and skills, washing wounds and burns. Perhaps you'll find a doctor and you won't be able to pay him. So learn to use antibiotics. It's good to have a stockpile of them. You should choose the simplest weapons. I carry a Glock 45. I like it, but it's a rare gun here, so I have two TT pistols, too. Everyone has them, and ammo is common. TT-30 stands for Tukarev, a Soviet semi-automatic handgun, just so you know. I don't like Kalashnikovs, but again, same story. Everyone has them, so I do, too. You must own small and noticeable items. For example, a generator is good, but 1,000 big lighters are better. A generator will attract a lot of attention from troublemakers, but 1,000 lighters are compact, cheap, and can always be traded. We usually collected rainwater into four large barrels and then boiled it. There was a small river, but the water in it became very dirty very fast. It's also important to have containers for water, barrels, and buckets. Question 6. Were gold and silver useful? I personally traded all the gold in the house for ammunition. Sometimes we got our hands on money, dollars, and Deutschmarks. We bought some things with them, but this was rare and prices were astronomical. For example, a can of beans cost 30 to $40. The local money quickly became worthless. Everything we needed, we traded through barter. Question 7. Was salt expensive? Yes, but coffee and cigarettes were even more expensive. I had lots of alcohol and traded it without problems. Alcohol consumption grew over 10 times as compared to peacetime. Perhaps today it's more useful to keep a stock of cigarettes, lighters, and batteries. They take up less space. At that time, I was not a survivalist. We had no time to prepare, several days before it happened. The politicians kept repeating over the TV that everything was going to go according to plan. There was no reason to be concerned. When the sky fell on our heads, we took what we could. Question 8. Was it difficult to purchase firearms? What did you trade for arms and ammunition? After the war, we had guns in every house. The police confiscated lots of guns at the beginning of the war, but most of them we hid. Now I have one legal gun that I have a license for. Under the law, that's called a temporary collection. If there's unrest, the government will seize all the registered guns. Never forget that. You know there are many people who have one legal gun, but also illegal guns, in case that one gets seized. If you have good trade goods, you might be able to get a gun in a tough situation. But remember, the most difficult time is the first few days, and perhaps you don't have enough time to find a weapon to protect your family. To be disarmed in a time of chaos and panic is a bad idea. In my case, there was a man who needed a car battery for his radio. He had shotguns. I traded a recharger for both of them. Sometimes I traded ammunition for food, and a few weeks later traded food for ammunition. Never did the trade at home, though. Never in great amounts. Few people knew how much and what I kept at home. The most important thing is to keep as many things as possible in terms of space and money. Eventually, you'll understand what's more valuable. Correction, I'll always value weapons and ammunition the most. Second, maybe gas masks and filters. Nine, what about security? Our defenses were very primitive. Again, we weren't ready. We used what we could. The windows were shattered, then the roofs were in horrible state after the bombings. The windows were blocked, some with sandbags, others with rocks. I blocked the fence gate with wreckage and garbage and used a ladder to get across the wall. 
When I came home, I asked someone inside to pass over the ladder. We had a fellow on our street that completely barricaded himself in his house. He broke a hole in the wall, creating a passage for himself into the ruins of the neighbor's house, a sort of secret entrance. Maybe this would seem strange, but the most protected houses were looted and destroyed first. In my area of the city, there were beautiful houses with walls, dogs, alarms, and barred windows. People attacked them first. Some held out, but others didn't. It all depended on how many hands and guns they had inside. I think defense is very important, but it must be carried out unobtrusively. If you are in a city and in this stuff happens, you'll need a simple, non-flashy place with lots of guns and ammo. How much ammo? Well, as much as possible. Make your house as unattractive as you can. Right now I own a steel door, but that's just against the first wave of chaos. After that passes, I will leave the city to rejoin a larger group of people, my friends and family. There were some situations during the war, there's no need for details, but we always had superior firepower and a brick wall on our side. We also constantly kept someone watching the streets. Quality organization is paramount in case of gang attacks. Shooting was constantly heard in the city. Our perimeter was defended. All the exits were barricaded and had little firing slits. Inside, we had at least five family members ready for battle at any time and one man in the street hidden in a shelter. We stayed home through the day to avoid sniper fire. The weakest perish first, then the rest fight. During the day, the streets were practically empty due to sniper fire. Defenses were oriented towards short-range combat alone. Many died if they went out to gather information, for example. It's important to remember we had no information, no radio, no TV, only rumors and nothing else. There was no organized army. Every man fought. We didn't have any choice. Everyone was armed, ready to defend themselves. You should not wear quality items in the city. Someone will murder you and take them. Don't even carry a pretty long arm. It will attract attention. Let me tell you something. If this stuff starts tomorrow, I'll be humble. I'll look like everyone else. Desperate. Fearful. Maybe I'll even shout and cry a little bit. Pretty clothing is excluded altogether. I will not go out in my new tactical outfit to shout, I have come, you're doomed, bad guys. No, I'll stay aside, well-armed, well-prepared, waiting and evaluating my possibilities with my best friend or brother. Super defenses, super guns are meaningless. If people think they should steal your things, that you're profitable, they're going to steal your things. It's only a question of time and the amount of guns and hands you have. Question 10. How was the situation with toilets? We used shovels and a patch of earth near the house. Does it seem dirty? Yeah, it was. We washed with rainwater in the river, but most of the time the ladder was too dangerous. We had no toilet paper, and if we had any, I would have traded it away. It was a dirty business. Let me give you a piece of advice. You need guns and ammo first, and second, everything else. Literally everything. If you forget something, there will always be someone to trade for it. But if you forget weapons and ammo, there won't be any access to trading for you. I don't think big families are extra mouths. Big families means both more guns and strength. And from there, everyone prepares on his own. Question 11. How did people treat the sick and injured? Most injuries were from gunfire. Without a specialist, without equipment, if an injured man found a doctor somewhere, he had about a 30% chance of survival. It ain't like the movies. People died. Many people died from infection or superficial wounds. I had antibiotics for three to four uses, for the family, of course. People died foolishly quite often. Simple diarrhea will kill you in a few days without medicine, with limited amounts of water. There were many skin diseases and food poisonings. Many used local plants and pure alcohol, enough for the short term, but useless in the long term. Hygiene is very important, as well as having as much medicine as possible, especially antibiotics. That's the end of the interview. 
So if you want to prevent what is coming from coming, well, take it up with God, because he's ordained that it's coming. If you want to think it won't happen in my lifetime, okay. But if you want to prepare to survive what is coming, just in case the rapture doesn't take you up beforehand, think long and hard about what this man said. When we find ourselves suddenly and without warning in that situation, it will be much too late to prepare. Remember, God said his people perish for lack of knowledge. He also said that if you endure to the end, you will be saved. And that particular reference, I believe, refers to the rapture. But the concept of enduring implies a time of great trial through which we Christians will have to navigate. I recommend that we hope for the best while preparing to navigate wisely with our family members and our selected friends. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and punch that sign, symbol, or button to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and UndergroundChristian.net. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Lord God, none of us deserve you, but you have promised your servants that we will get you. Please open the hearts and minds of more and more people so that they can prepare appropriately. I am not advocating violence, but preparation. Help us understand these difficult issues and your will before we have to face them. If you want to take us from this earth before then, well, hallelujah. But if not, we will need your help and strength to get us through it. Meanwhile, please purge from our hearts and souls the vile wickedness that afflicts all of us, not least of whom me. If these words I have spoken today represent your thoughts, please help spread them to the people who need to hear them. And if not, well, shut me up already. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.